This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Couchbase, a modern multi-cloud-to-edge, SQL-friendly JSON document database for building applications with agility, performance, and scale. If you're new to Couchbase and would like to learn more, the Couchbase Developer Portal is the best place to start. It's loaded with tutorials, videos, and documentation, as well as best practice tips, quick start guides, and community resources, including the Couchbase Developer Community Forum. To get started developing on Couchbase, visit couchbase.com slash dotnet rocks. That's couchbase.com slash d-o-t-n-e-t-r-o-c-k-s. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And boy, it's been a while since we recorded a show. It's been a few weeks. Uh, I, what, do you like it? I'm like, I give you time off. We do a bunch of shows all at once. Then you get a couple of weeks off. Then you do a bunch more. I like it. It's March 1st right now. I mean, not yes. right now as you're listening to this, but as we're recording it, it's March 1st. And I saw the crocuses coming up, poking up oh, through the nice. lawn today saying... He, here I am, here I am. Don't worry, life is coming back. Life is coming back. Yeah. It is been a pretty rough winter, no two ways about it. It is pretty cool. Um, this is going to be a great show, but uh, before we get the guests and stuff, and before Better Know Framework, I have a little announcement to make. Mm-hmm. I have put out what I think is going to be a very popular uh, GitHub repo. It's called Blazor Sliders, and there's a new Git package for it as well. It's just what you think, but sliders is sort of, you know, you think like a slider that goes back and forth, but I'm talking about... I think about a hamburger, but that's just yeah, me. Yeah, especially blazer sliders, right? I mean, that's yes. something I want to order at Chili's. Give me that's an order. spicy. Blazer <laughs> or Burger King or something. <laughs> but <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, so, so it's multiple panels, horizontal and vertical split panels. Right. So you have a splitter right. in the middle and you can grab the splitter and move it left and right to resize the panels. And the whole thing resizes when you resize the browser. You can make it take up the whole screen. Uh, it's blazer. It's good. You can nest them right now. You can only nest a horizontal inside a vertical, but I'm working on multiple nesting. I'm, I'm, I basically got it working and now I'm, yeah. you know, I put it out there and now, now I'm getting good. Yeah. Now I'm refactoring it and making it actually yeah. more efficient and less verbose and all and that. And now stuff. you get the mean notes from people when yeah, they of course. build their whole product around your library and it's your fault that they're struggling. Yeah. It's only been a couple of days and 30 downloads. So I'm not all that yeah, worried about it. Yeah. Give them a couple more weeks to really I'll get the hate on for you. Right. So, here's my advice. If you're using 1.0.1, um, that's going to change. So, but but the good news is, is that properties are being taken away, um, not added. So, you won't need to do so much manual setup work. It'll automatically discover who the children are and who the parents are, and it'll automatically figure out how to size itself. Right now I do, I have, I require a little bit of setup in the parameters, but uh, that's going away. So anyway, enjoy it. Blazor Sliders, it works on Blazor Server and Blazor Wasm. And cool. uh, yeah, but that's not my better know framework. Oh, okay. Well, you better play the music then. Be- yeah, we better. Go ahead. <laughs> no, you do it. No, no you do it. No, you. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> <laughs> All right, buddy, what do you got? All right, well, this is actually pretty cool. And uh, the guys in one of the guys in um, uh, the AppV Next Slack room, Scott Routley, found this. So Microsoft use, uses this thing called CodeQL. It's a, a semantic code analysis engine that's part of GitHub, right? Okay. They open sourced it. So, and, and the QL. whole idea is that you can use code QL to make queries to hunt for, uh, sol- solar gate activity. So essentially what you can do is you can have this thing query your code base and find the malicious bits. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. So I don't understand a whole lot of it, but I, it is mind blowing that, you know, you can just imagine just 
checking your code in and then, you know, GitHub says, you know, hey, this is uh, or notifies you of, you know, malicious code. So it's uh, it's really cool. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. And it, and it is becoming a normal part of the pipeline these days, it seems, for uh, software is also looking for, like, accidental uses of somebody else's code. Right. Like, you don't, you know, people right. cut and paste things and, like, don't necessarily know where sources come right. from. So, you can trace more of that analysis across the board of just, like, where is this code from? Right. Does it have some risk? Trace that, that whole thing. dependency chain. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's good. But I thought All James right. would like that. And, uh now over to you, Richard. What's uh, who's talking to us today? Well, considering the last time we had James on was 2013, it's very unfair to read like comments from eight, nine years ago. Oh, but we should not anyway. That, not that I wouldn't do that, but <laughs> actually, I found a really relevant comment for this show from an old compatriot of James's, from Jeremy Miller. This is from show 1655. Wow, this is a show we did with Jeremy Miller back in October of 2019, talking about the ASP.NET Core ecosystem. And so that whole, the, what the open source community looked like there. And so we talked about a lot of different things in that space, one of which was talking about non-relational databases. And this is right. from Alex Krauss. So this is a comment about a year and a half old now where he says, hey, it's always interesting to hear from rock stars like Jeremy Miller. But as the show was constantly sliding towards NoSQL, because we were making happy noises, right. some of the statements from Carl Richard about NoSQL put me off a bit, like when Richard said, why would I make the customer wait to decompose objects, just store the object? Right. Uh, of course, I, I think it's a little unfair, unfair Alex, because I followed that with just make the customer wait, store the object, and then break it out into a relational database asynchronously, right, after the customer's already moved on. Right. The, he goes on to say, though I understand that adding all the caveats to the statements would make the show boring as a DDD worshiper, an active NoSQL developer, for years, here's my outcry. There is a serious cost associated with developing and supporting NoSQL databases. Mm. There is for relational databases too, man. Uh, consider at least document type databases, which most people mean when they say NoSQL. The aggregates are designed for the most often operation, reading data. Mm -hmm. So persisting aggregates is not meant to be quick since it involves data duplication, maintaining references out of the boundaries and so forth. And about performance, hey, SQL is performant too. The question is, what are you trying to do? There are places where NoSQL shines, and uh, there are also places where databases do just fine. I do like NoSQL and like to see a much higher level of usage in the enterprise. But modern, hazy understanding of NoSQL obstructs adoption of the technology. Seeing it in a pragmatic way as just another tool in your tool belt, even though SQL is the default option, would remove the perception of it being an untouchable shrine and get more people using it. Yeah. And he does... Uh, Reference a couple of blog posts, including seven reasons not to use NoSQL and the book NoSQL Distilled by Martin Fowler, which is a little stale, but it's Martin Fowler. You should read it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I, I just thought it was interesting. You know, perhaps we weren't firm enough on this whole, you know, I think the two things work together really well. There are places where NoSQL makes sense, places where SQL makes sense, and most places where both will help you at the same time. Yep. So, Alex, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on Facebook where we publish every show. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, I'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. And, uh, you know, hurry up because time's wasting. Nice. Yeah. It's springtime. We want to get out there and play in the crocuses. All right, so I'd like to introduce, reintroduce James Kovacs and uh, introduce for the first time Rochelle Palmer. So, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, James Kovacs was a frequent guest on .NET Rocks. He spoke at conferences, wrote magazine articles, and had an active Twitter account. Then, a career change landed him at MongoDB, where he has spent the last five years in self-inflicted obscurity. I like that. Self-inflicted obscurity. Uh, during that time, he has worked on the technical support team, assisting customers with the core database product, and more recently on the drivers team, building the language idiomatic drivers that allow developers to connect to MongoDB. His current focus is implementing new features in the MongoDB.net C-sharp driver, which is used by millions of developers worldwide. And uh, for the first time on .NET Rocks, Rochelle Palmer... Uh, is currently a senior product manager focused on developer experience at MongoDB, 
which includes drivers and integrations with all of MongoDB's officially supported programming languages, which are C Sharp, .NET, Python, of course, C Sharp, slash .NET, Python, Ruby, PHP, Node.js, Rust, Go, Swift, and Java. She's been with MongoDB since 2013. Let me welcome you individually. Welcome, James. Thank you. Welcome back. Oh, good to be back. And welcome, Rochelle. Thanks. MongoDB. James, uh, I'll, I'll never forget that first um, uh, show that you did with us, low those many years ago, um, in, in the absolute perfect description of IOC and why you need it. And uh, it just, uh, you know, it was a great explanation. I, I consider it the best explanation of those things since, before or since. I appreciate that. A lot of my goal of technology is to understand yeah. things at a fundamental level and then share it with others. And I'm hoping to bring some of that knowledge of non-relational databases and MongoDB to Fabulous. the .NET community. And uh, I think I heard about MongoDB in the context of RavenDB, which is Ayende Rahin's uh, thing. And I guess he he wanted to do something similar to Mongo, but I never really... Um, Never really got into it, into Raven, but I did like the way he um, was talking about how indexes are created on the fly and all of that stuff. And I imagine it's very much the same in Mongo. Yeah, Ayande is a smart guy. And he was trying to build a native and uh, non-relational yeah. engine on Windows for the .NET framework. And uh, like he, t a lot of the ideas he took from MongoDB, uh, like we are a competitive product, I will fully admit. Uh, but with MongoDB, you've got a much larger organization behind it. Sure. You've got a lot more features. Uh, and it's amazing all the things that uh, – yes. and all the places that MongoDB is used. It's been around for well over a decade. Rochelle, do you remember when we were founded? 2007? Might have been 2009. Somewhere, somewhere around there. So we've been around for a while. And we've gone through, there's been a lot of different technology steps along the way and improvements. So that's been I remember very being fascinating in to see. Ireland with that Canadian who's been quiet so far. Uh, <laughs> we were on the uh, ScotNet Rocks. Was it ScotNet Rocks? It was the England, Ireland, and Scotland tour that we did. Yes. And so we were in um, Dublin. And we were heading out to go meet a friend at, you know, for some traditional music. And right next door to the hotel was MongoDB. But it was just really, it was really like a, a Soviet kind of experience. There was just the word MongoDB in a very small font on the door. You remember this, Richard? Yeah, yeah. And I was like, huh, <laughs> isn't that kind of unassuming, right? For this huge ass big company to just have this little door with this little logo. <laughs> we're not that big <laughs> yeah 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 no what i'm saying is it was probably a big office but just under understated at the front door the little door a, a little sign on a perfectly normal size oh door, yeah yeah actually <laughs> right so what's new in mongodb are we talking about atlas yeah we can talk atlas we can talk drivers right? we can talk core server product so many things because dot the dot net constituency has not been the usual constituency for mongo right like i normally think of mongo in the context of the lamps no yeah right right the the, the linux world often often so uh, we the the actual core server can run on a variety of operating systems including windows including linux including a variety of other ones mac os things like that a lot of times people will build applications in whatever their development language is. And that's something that we've seen a real uptick in is that people are, we're developing on Windows.NET applications, but we're seeing more and more desire to move sure. those.NET applications over to Linux servers. Um, for the simple reason, cheaper to run, runs faster. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Full stop. <laughs> End of conversation. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of companies are interested in doing this. Uh, so that's one thing is like, and the other thing is uh, sometimes people will question like, how much is MongoDB committed to the Microsoft ecosystem? We have a lot of customers running the, the Microsoft stack that are connecting to MongoDB. Uh, our C Sharp driver team is one of our larger driver teams. Awesome. We've got five full-time members on the team right now that are actively developing features. 
Uh, the .NET driver itself has been around for over eight years, and we are supporting more and more. Uh, we're currently going through a rewrite of our link provider to provide better link support, and that's going to be coming in a future version. So we're very much invested in the .NET ecosystem and in Microsoft developers. Yeah, the link side of of querying Mongo with link is very interesting because it's better or worse. Like link is very relational oriented. So to yes. sort of get this, I, you know, there used to be an ODBC driver for Excel too. It didn't make it a good idea. Like <laughs> you can <laughs> cram the, the link query style into through a, a, a Mongo database. I just know what kind of performance you're going to get from it. Quite good actually, because what, from a technical standpoint, uh, C sharp with link is just mm -hmm. an abstract syntax tree. It's an AST. And we take that tree and then we translate it over into the equivalent MQL or MongoDB query language. And so it is actually quite efficient and we can get very good performance. Uh, it's one of my favorite ways of actually accessing MongoDB and performing complex queries, right. often doing aggregations, group by operations, uh, really crunching data is a lot easier to do in a link query than often just hand handcrafting the queries yourself. Cause you still have relations. It's just, they're just not, you know, so diabolically specked out. Right? I mean, you just figure them out on the fly and build indexes. You know, the, the friendly way to say that is structure. Yeah. And I did that in air quotes. <laughs> structure. I like diabolical. <laughs> That's better. <laughs> it's more accurate. <laughs> Well, and one of the, and that's one of the things that hmm. allows MongoDB to perform really well compared to a relational database is that if you think about your typical SQL database, a lot of your relations are parent child relations. Right. Where one object fully owns another one. But because SQL is SQL and everything's structured as tables and you've got foreign keys, you have to break everything apart. So you're spending a lot of comp computation resources. Mm -hmm. breaking things apart, and then yeah. putting them back together. Whereas with MongoDB, you've got an order which has an, a shipping address and a bunch of order line items and a discount, and you just jam that all into one document, and that can be queried as a whole. MongoDB also has a very advanced query language so that you can say, give me all customers who received a 25% discount, right. even though that 25% discount is buried inside that order document. But if you think about it, you don't want that order document to ever change because that was the order. That is the truth. This was the point I made on Jeremy Miller's show all that time ago, right? It's like, you know, the actual reference of the truth is all the things at that moment. Right. Store those things. Yeah. Then decompose them later for analysis. And I've done SQL applications that are like that. They need to know the state of what was the address at that particular time. And you have to put in a whole bunch of machinery and always ensure that new addresses are always inserted and you're versioning them and all of that becomes very complicated. And with MongoDB, you just store the current address. Here's a really good example. Um, the .NET Rocks database is a, is a SQL database. And we have a guest table and we have a shows table. And, you know, the guests have a photo and description or whatever in a bio, right? And any time that uh, that bio changes, it changes everywhere that it's referenced. So, you go back For and listen show, to a show from 2002, <laughs> it's got a bio, you know, yeah. it doesn't have the original bio and picture. It's all been updated. And so, you're listening to it yeah, and I'm reading the, the bio and it's the old bio. <laughs> well... Let's look at it this way. James's first show on Donna Rocks was 2008, and his bio on that show now says he works for MongoDB, you know, before That's MongoDB right. existed. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And so people are going, I was a trend traveler. What can I say? Yeah. Go, huh? What? <laughs> Rachel, what's your role at Mongo? Um, so I moved over to product in 2020s. And I currently own all of our drivers and APIs. And then in addition, um, framework integration. So for PHP, that's Laravel. Um, you know, for Ruby, that's uh, Rails and our mm -hmm. uh, Rails ODM, which is Mongoid. So a whole lot of stuff is the summary. Oh, my goodness. All the I stuff. We've got the boss here. Yeah, it's, it's pretty exciting. I mean, um, I joined MongoDB in 2013, and it was a really different company then. I actually, at the time, uh, we didn't make any money 
Life was um, easier then. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I actually was, um, when I first joined, I was on the cloud team and um, it was a much different product then. This was pre-Atlas. And so I actually have the spreadsheet of when we first started making money and I basically backed out our own personal credit cards. And we discovered that someone who didn't work at MongoDB had paid us and we had like a little party for our team. So that's how long it's been. Wow. But it's been pretty crazy um, every day since yeah, I joined. You've been, so. you've been through the story arc of a startup becoming a real company. And that's without yeah. being acquired, without going public, like just growing up. And that's a rarity yeah. to simply grow up and be a company. I, I really recommend it if you can <laughs> if you can handle the stress. Um, oh, I yeah. think it, it's much much preferred to uh, working at a big enterprise company where you're a cog for, which is what I did prior to MongoDB. Yeah. Well, big, yeah, big machines. So we've obliquely referenced Atlas a couple of times. I guess we better tell that story. So what yeah. is MongoDB Atlas? Um, so MongoDB Atlas is our database as a service uh, platform. You can use MongoDB Atlas with any cloud provider. So that's Azure, that's GCP, that's AWS. Mm-hmm. And it essentially you, you know, create an account. We have a free tier and it's free forever. And you create your own little MongoDB database and you're up and running and you get your connection string and you're off to the races. It's huge at this point. Um, I was also obviously there when it was first created you know, wing in a prayer, Hail Mary type of style. Um, and now, you know, we have um, C-Sharp actually is really big on Atlas. We have over 10,000 active projects, wow, nice. which active is somebody has logged in in the last 30 days and done something. So that's, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty big. And that's specifically C-Sharp projects. Right. Yeah. Nice. Like overall project is much, much larger. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Overall projects is uh, over over a million at this point. So. Well, yeah, I would, yeah. I would presume C-Sharp is still very much a minority player in the in the Mongo ecosystem. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you'd be surprised. Huh. Um, you'd be surprised, actually. Top, it's it's fine, fascinating to me. You know, when I took over this position, I have to say, like, I was a, a little... Um, nervous about C sharp because it's one of the languages I've never worked with. I didn't know anything about it. I'm like, mm, Microsoft. Um, <laughs> Heard but, that trade before. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm a Linux person, so I'm like, mm. never Windows, never. Right. Um, but actually, it's it's been super fun and it's one of my favorite teams to work with because the community is just so great, like really great. Mm. Yeah. Um, and out of the top, you know, I think out of the top 10 gaming companies, eight of them use MongoDB and wow. a lot of them use Atlas actually, which is pretty exciting. That's really cool. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's an area of focus. And then, of course, like a bunch of um, enterprise and financial firms use C-sharp uh, because it's a serious language meant for serious work. It's not mm-hmm. a hobbyist thing, I don't, in, in the way that some other languages are. Well, Dan. Yeah. If you look at our commercial support offering, which is where we make a good portion of our money, uh, where companies pay us to right. assist them and troubleshoot their applications. Uh, most of these, as you can imagine, are enterprises, and therefore they use enterprise languages. Mm-hmm. Top top tier is Java. Sure, not surprising there. No. Java C sharp is actually a really close second for. And they're, I mean, let's face yep. it, they essentially have similar origins, right? Yeah. Oh, exactly. Statically typed, object oriented, managed yep. memory language in, in development environments, mm-hmm. like pretty, pretty similar. They are brothers. Yeah. Yep. And then, and then past that is then Node.js, and then the rest right. of the, our languages kind of fall into down below that. But yeah, the top top three languages mm-hmm. are Java, Java C sharp, and yeah. Node.js. So yeah, on our enterprise side. Java, you know, Java and C sharp, and then your sort of classic open web dev, dev it's going to be Node.js. Mm-hmm. A lot of developers, whether Java mm-hmm. or C sharp, like to play around with Node.js on the side. So that's what I've seen in enterprises is that they'll be a Microsoft shop, and so they'll all be C sharp, or they're a Java shop, so they'll all be Java. But then they've got a bunch of Node.js applications, and both teams do exactly that. They'll play with Node.js. Because everybody has to write a little JavaScript. It's kind of unavoidable. <laughs> yep. It's true. Uh, I'm looping back a bit to the Mongo uh, to Atlas uh, here. So, if I'm on Azure, I can I can buy this as a service, and it's also running on Azure. So, you guys are actually operating on the three major cloud providers. Yep. yep. 
And actually, you can, if if you're worried about it, um, or if you're one of the unfortunate souls who survived one of the AWS outages in the past few years, you can actually have one of your, each of your MongoDB nodes on a different cloud. So you can run across cloud, which uh, is interesting. pretty cool. So I like that. Well, any... I'm part somewhat like cloud multi-cloud is mythology too. It's almost a, like a checklist item, but it's, I appreciate that. Yeah, you've done that. And so I could sync across these infrastructures if I wanted to migrate mm-hmm. or, or to have a failover to another cloud. I just haven't, as a guy who built a lot of failover solutions over the past decades, this is disturbing. <laughs> um, I haven't seen a lot of fielded <laughs> multi-clouds like we can fail from from AWS to Azure or, or to GCP. Like that's just doesn't there doesn't seem to be much of that actually. Lots of people talking about it. A lot of people talk about it, but not a lot of people either do it or actually need to do it. Yeah, where I think multi where multi-cloud really plays strong, especially to CTOs, is mm. the lack of lock-in. If you're running on Azure and Microsoft decides to drastically increase its prices. Yeah. You can just port your entire solution over to GCP or AWS. Which is not going to be free. Like there's going to be effort involved with that, but it's at least doable. But yeah. It's doable. You're not all of a sudden reconsidering, okay, how am I going to rewrite my entire data layer in order to achieve these savings? Yeah. So what you're really describing then is Prozac for CTOs, <laughs> right? That's what it actually is. It's like, keep the CTO calm. <laughs> Everything's going to be fine, right? We just drop a couple of these in his coffee. He'll be all right. I guess it also defines on how far you go. It depends on how far you go, right? So you can have everything in another cloud ready to go, just laying dormant, just in images, right? And then turn it on if something goes wrong mm-hmm. rather than invest a whole lot of time and effort and money into automatic failover stuff. You, you mm-hmm. know, then, then it just comes down to up, oh, somebody gets a, a phone call or an alarm and they have to do it really quickly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I still think it would be days. Right? Yeah. Like it's just not that trivial, like to, to shift that stuff across. And, and hopefully you're using, VMs and and containers and things that are relatively mm-hmm. portable right. that you could go across. Like right. If you're deeply invested in any of the different vendors' serverless technologies or sort of the, right. their distinctive technologies, those are going to be harder to move. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, and that's something that when you're building a cloud-based application, you have to consider. Uh, the mm-hmm. cloud vendors do provide a wide variety of very convenient services but they lock you into their platform. Mm-hmm. So how locked in are you willing to be? How much risk are you willing to tolerate being locked into AWS or another platform? And how much do you want the flexibility to move services around? Well, I like uh, Azure's Kubernetes service because you can use your own Docker containers and everything. So as long as you have your containers someplace mm-hmm. ready to go, you could do your own Kubernetes in an, in a GCP or in um in Amazon, if you need to. Um, but while you're on Azure, you can enjoy all the, the wonderful high-level stuff of AKS. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As a sort of separate thing, I think one of the other benefits of Atlas is that it's secure by default. It, you get TLS or SSL automatically that's by nice. default. You don't have to set up anything, which is really nice because, you know, that's that's hard. <laughs> You've also got a variety of secure security solutions around, uh, like you can log in with uh, a username password, which is properly hashed and salted over the net. Like you don't, we're not passing anything in clear text. Uh, you can use LDAP, you can use uh, API keys. There's a variety of ways of actually authenticating with the Atlas service, as well as private networks so that you can isolate your, tri- like if you have uh, Azure deployed infrastructure, you can make sure that it goes through private links. So you're only going across Azure controlled interfaces. You're not ever going out onto the public web. Oh, yeah. That reminds me. I wanted you to tell people about FLE while we're here. Before we dive into that, let's take a break for this very important message. If you've had automating your ASP.NET deployments on your to-do list, now's a great time to give Octopus Deploy a try. The Starter Edition lets you install Octopus on your own infrastructure and deploy to IIS web servers, Azure websites, and pretty much anything from Node to Kubernetes 
and they just made it free for small teams. Give your team a single place to release, deploy, and operate software with Octopus Deploy. Find out more at octopus.com. This episode of .NET Rocks is brought to you by EveryPlate, America's best value meal kit delivery service. Not only is the food fresh and amazing, but each meal costs about as much as a cup of coffee. Recipes come together in about 30 minutes, definitely faster than a trip to the grocery store and starting a meal from scratch. Every plate gives you easy-to-follow recipe cards and pre-portioned ingredients, so you can spend less time prepping and cooking and more time enjoying good food with family or loved ones. I wanted to see if every plate was as good as it was cost-effective, and after subscribing and cooking a few awesome meals, I'm convinced that you can get the same deliciousness at a much lower price. So experience fuller plates and a fatter wallet. Try every plate for just $1.99 per meal plus an additional 20% off your next two boxes by going to everyplate.com and entering code.net199. That's right. Get started with every plate for just $1.99 per meal plus an additional 20% off your next two boxes. That's a $100 value. Go to everyplate.com now and enter code.net199. That's D-O-T-N-E-T. One ninety nine, and we're back. It's .NET Rocks. I'm Richard Campbell. That's my friend Carl Franklin, Yo. and we're talking to James Kovacs and Rochelle Palmer, and talking a little MongoDB and all of the cool offerings that are going on there. And James, I just interrupted you. We were talking about LFE, uh, client side field level encryption (CSFLE). So what what that is is it's a recent feature that was added to MongoDB, and it allows you to do your encryption on the client side. So you actually acquire encryption keys from uh, an encryption key provider, either on Azure. We now support Azure and uh, and AWS. Mm-hmm. Uh, GCP, I think we added as well recently. So any of the major cloud providers, they provide uh, key containers. So you can request keys and those are ever only ever seen on the client side. So any data that you read has been encrypted with your key. So the server, the MongoDB mm, right. server can't read it. It's just an opaque blob of bits. Once it gets to the client, it's, it can be automatically decrypted. So it looks like clear text. So if you're storing pass, well, you shouldn't be storing. Don't say password. Just leave that topic out. How about PPI, right? Like, yeah, or PII, personal identifiable information, which sometimes people want to store. So, so if you're storing uh, credit card details, once again, <laughs> do you really need to? Uh, but things like social security numbers, which often you do need to have them stored in your database, but you don't want your cloud provider necessarily to have access to them. You can use hmm. client-side field-level encryption to actually encrypt these fields and ensure that, and if you read them, it just looks like encrypted bits. But if you have the decryption key, then all of a sudden it's readable and usable. And is there an ability to share those keys between devices so that multiple devices could decrypt it, even though the store cannot? Yes. Uh, so th- you actually communicate with the, like the Azure key store, AKS. And so if your client is typically you do it on a server, but if that server has been allowed access to AKS, which you all control through the AKS infrastructure, then it, that client would be able to decrypt and encrypt data to and from that are, is coming from MongoDB. But if it didn't have those encryption keys, for instance, if it was a reporting app that could only report on high level patient information, but none of the particulars, then you wouldn't grant it access and it would not right. ha- be able to read those fields. But you can go very granular. You can go, okay, I want these three fields encrypted, but I don't want these other 12 encrypted at all. So you can, it's not like you have to encrypt the entire object. You can if you want to, but typically you'd encrypt field by field. What's sensitive? Right. So you could protect in specific bits of data. But we, be- we battled this problem with, you know, encryption on SQL Server too, where it was easy to encrypt the whole thing, but then you literally, you know, you just crippled any kind of querying because you had to decrypt everything to figure out anything. Right. You mm-hmm. know, just to, just encrypting the sensitive information, you know, just the salary information, just the identifiable, but the index, the indexable stuff, the important stuff, we were still legible. Well, one of the other interesting things that we play with is you, when you're designing your encryption scheme, what you can do is you can say, 
let's say you're encrypting the salary information. You can encrypt it always with the same key. So it always encrypts to the same mm. value. You don't know what that value is, but it's always the same value. Right. And that allows you to still query it. You can't do range-based queries, but you can do give me everybody who earns $50,000 because you can encrypt that $50,000 to a known value and then query the database saying, so give me everybody with this known value. I may not know what that value is, but I know it's the same across these records. Exactly. Interesting. Hmm. Exactly. So there's a lot of fun things you can do with that from an application design standpoint and security standpoint. Yeah, if you get if you think hard about it, but this whole it's encrypted before it leaves the device is pretty compelling for a lot of folks, right? I don't I'm not transmitting it counting on some kind of encryption during transmission mm. and then encrypting it again as it goes to rest on the in the central store. I encrypted it before I left. That's right. Yeah, I got some applications for that. <laughs> My head's going. <laughs> no- <laughs> And that's that's the client side encryption. Then we do also do a lot of like, when you're on Azure, the bits that actually get spat out to the actual volumes are encrypted as well. So we do on disk encryption as well, right, to ensure that th- that is secure. Well, you guys, Mongo went through the security ride. I did a run as back in 2017 about the Mongo exploit, which is like the hey, you know what? Yeah, got to be careful with defaults. Defaults are hard. Yes. That's- but it's, I think that's also, you know, your product's important when it makes, when it becomes a part of an exploit like that. Like, and now you have to think about your product differently too. And that was an interesting growing pain going from focusing on startups to an enterprise company. Yeah. Because as a startup, we want people to just be able to spin up a MongoD on your Super local easy, laptop. Right. No, don't have to worry about authenticating or anything. You just, connect to a certain port and you're off to the races. So we made it really easy for developers to get MongoDB set up and running. Yeah. And shoot but themselves in the face. <laughs> well, that was the problem. And we had, we had, we had all of our document at the time I was working with technical support and we had all the documentation saying yeah. how to secure it and nobody bothered. Yeah. Mm. Just the, that's the reality because the default was unsecured. Yeah. You kind of have to force them to do the right thing. Even though it impairs their ability to get started, yep. but the other the Atlas is another solution to that. It's like, hey, you develop locally, you're ready to go into production. Why don't you use our secure one in the cloud and don't worry about scaling it and all those other things? Like, life will be easier this way, and you're far more likely to stay safe. Exactly, because when you even when you spin up an M0 cluster, which is our lowest free tier, always free, that is secured over TLS. It has password protection automatically turned on. Everything is secure by default in Atlas. And so you can try out. I actually spent last week building applications with my team, just like, let's build a C-sharp application and see what it's like from a user perspective. And we just spun up an Atlas database, put some data in there, and we're able to securely connect and start writing a phone app, actually, right on the device and connecting to Atlas. So that was a lot of fun. But yeah, it was secure by default out of the box. And as you start to scale, that's the other nice thing about Atlas is you're going, you say, okay, now I need some more horsepower behind it. This I've developed the, the, the next plants versus zombies game. <laughs> Let's start scaling this. Now we can, it, it's literally a click of the button in the UI. It's like, okay, I need an M30, which is our dedicated tier. Okay. I need something with even bigger up to M50, M100. And what we are doing on the back end is basically scaling up the VMs that they're running on and providing more resources to the back end. Which is something systems. somebody could do. Like your your ops team could be scaling Mongo themselves, but do they want to? Do they want to learn how? It is a skill well, exactly. to scale that thing. Yeah, there, and there are definitely people who do that. We do have an enterprise subscription where you can, well, you can also just do it on community if you want to write a lot of your own tooling. Uh, you can download community for free and start building out your own MongoDB infrastructure. But is that what you want to specialize in? Right. Do you get a lot of customer requests um, asking you to move their relational databases to Mongo? Some. Some. Yeah. I mean, is that a, is that a common thing? And that's that's an area that... It's an area that uh, I know our consulting team does a lot of work in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one of the nice things about MongoDB is <laughs> there's a support team, there's a consulting sure. team, there's an engineer. We've got all these different teams that can focus on different things. There is a desire to move relational workloads over to MongoDB, depending on the application. Sometimes that can be a good thing, and sometimes 
it is more work than is really warranted. Yeah, I don't find that lift and shift is super popular. I think what tends to happen is that they sort of sidecar the two databases for a while and then they'll move workload over, but it tends to be that they re-architect in the process, which is why it's usually a very big project. So it's not sort of like, let's download all the yeah. data and then just put it in Mongo. It's it's more like... A- I'm even considering lifting and shifting because you have relational data that now has to be document data. Like, so therefore, it does need to be re-architected. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, do you, do you think that if you were going to make the case to somebody who's got a, you know, a hefty... SQL Azure bill every month because they're, you know, because it's expensive, let's face it. And, you know, the, maybe it turns out that the the shape of their data would lend itself really well to a document database. What's the case, you know, uh, is it a money and performance, both? Make the case there. Mm-hmm. I think it, I think it's both. Um, one of the solutions that is, is pretty recent. I can't remember which year we debuted our data lake, um, project, but it's basically, uh, you know, you can query your data in a S3 bucket and then the results of the query you can put into a MongoDB database. So that's how some companies shift their, uh, content you know, or their, their data basically hmm. to MongoDB Atlas, which is a pretty nice way to do it. Cause then it's like, I'm only moving the data that I need, which is kind of nice. Hmm. Um, I, I mean, I worked in consulting yeah, before MongoDB. I think that, you know, it's one of those projects that we would love to bid on as a consultancy firm because it'll take multiple years and it'll cost you millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. And then you may not actually get any, <laughs> your net, your net money gain you, loss might not really be what you were sold, I think. Well, you, yeah. you know, you look at the price of an enterprise license of SQL Server today. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's far more than the hardware. The hardware price keeps going down. The The license price keeps going up. Right. Like, what is it, 16000 a core right now for enterprise SQL Server? Like, it's mm-hmm. no fooling. Like you could buy a lot of SQL Azure for that. And I suspect you could buy an awful lot of Atlas for it too. Oh, that's true. Totally. I mean, that's one of the reasons to move Atlas also is it's a consumption-based model. So, you know, if you are going to run on M30s, then you, which is a sort of a smaller instance size, like, and then you scale up when you need to, Mm -hmm. or during specific periods of the year. Like if you're a retailer for Black Friday, you'll scale up and then you'll scale back down around Mm -hmm. Valentine's Day and it's fine. Yeah. Hmm. I've tried doing that with hardware. Mm-hmm. It's really tough to take those RAM out. Right? Like it's not a, it's not a good, don't do that. It's not a good idea. Like just leave the, leave those machines. Well, you don't have hot swap RAM, Richard? <laughs> well, you know, if you pull hard enough, everything's hot swap. <laughs> hot swap RAM. Yeah. But if, you know, to that point, right, this is a last, this sort of OPEX CAPEX choice is like instead of investing in that hardware and, and I'm seeing this on the IT side. These contracts are expiring. These hardware, this hardware is coming out of warranty. You're looking at, in some cases, two common numbers worth of equipment and licenses and so forth. And you can get an awful lot of variable cost resources for that money. It's like, can I just put that in the bank and pay it out monthly uh, and get, you know, pretty comparable results? And ultimately, if I'm careful and do some tuning and, and like you said, dial down and dial up at those times, I can spend less. No, nothing's for free. Like there's effort involved, yeah. but buy, there's nothing easy about buying and, and setting up new gear mm-hmm. either. Like it's a pile of work. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that's true and like, I'm sure that my, our sales team would literally murder me if they hear this podcast, but you can also, um, <laughs> in efforts to be developer friendly, we don't have long-term contracts for support. So if you're using Atlas, you can purchase support because you have a problem or you want a question answered. And then you can, of course, cancel your support. So you don't get locked into this sort of multi-year, thousands and thousands of dollars type of deal, which is really cool. Yeah. Well, and it depends on your organization as to how that works. I also know companies where it's like, listen, if you don't spend this money, you lose it from your budget. So, Mm. you, you know. Uh, and I've been on the vendor side of that where somebody's calling me saying, listen, I got to spend this money by the end of the month. Like, what can you sell me? 
I want you guys in the loop. Like, give me some kind of contract that shows I'll get value from you over the next year. I just need this money out of my account this yeah. month. It's like, you are my friend. <laughs> I will make you something special. I guarantee you. <laughs> yeah. Well, and actually, the reason we first started doing that is because what would happen is customers would have some kind of incident or some kind of problem and they would want, I want to buy support. I don't care how much it costs. I'll pay it right now. And we're like, oh, well, we'll have to send you to procurement and then you have to sign some papers. And they're like, can't I just give you a credit card? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. No, I, you need to start talking now. Here's right. like however much money you want. Take my money, please. solve please. my problems and also take my money. Yeah. Yes. Well, and again, it's like this is back to the Prozac statement. It's like I've been that contractor where it's like you pay a retainer to me so that I say they're there. It'll be okay. Right. Yeah. And then go make it okay. Well, and hearkening back to an earlier comment was there's a lot of – one place that the cloud really excels is elastic compute resources mm -hmm. where you can scale up and scale down. There's a quite a number of business – not all businesses, but there's a lot of businesses that are very cyclical in nature, either yeah. seasonal uh, where Black Friday mm -hmm. rush or uh, I worked with a particular customer who shall remain nameless. Wonderful folks to work with, uh, but they their peaks were around sporting events. Mm. So every time there was a Super Bowl or an MCAA tournament or some big sporting event, they'd have a huge spike mm. in traffic, and then it would die down to almost nothing. And so with they were actually on Atlas, and what they'd do is they'd scale up to very large instances a day or two before the big event, host the big event. And yeah, they'd be spending a lot of money for those few days, but they've also got a lot of income coming in because of those events. And then once those events are done, they would scale back down to minimal instances to keep the background traffic going. And there's a number of businesses, gaming companies do this where they have like Blizzard has a big launch and all of a sudden you're going to have a lot of traffic. I was like, hammered. now mm -hmm. we can scale up. And then once that interest dies down, then you scale back down. And that flexibility that you're not locked into physical hardware and having to pay to – because you're basically – with physical hardware, you're paying for your peaks. Yeah, yeah. You have well, to you pay for your You provision to the peaks. You provision to the peaks. Yeah. And then you've got that uh, peak provisioned hardware for the other 364 days that you don't need it. Yeah. That's uh, absolutely true. And, and certainly, it, it, this is the new era, right? The utility compute is that we can – buy what we need when we need it and in reasonably sh short amounts of time i mean how long does it take to move to a higher end instance and uh, on atlas minutes a few minutes yeah yeah there's a lot of uh, we do a lot of uh interesting things in the back end uh most of the cloud providers will allow you to tweak their hardware once every six hours right so like if if you just need um like a very common thing we're a database we live and die by IOPS, right. disk IOPS. Mm -hmm. So if you want to bump up from like a thousand IOPS to 10,000 IOPS, that'll take a few minutes. Yeah. I still think if I, if it's my, me doing ops coming into Black Friday, it's like on Wednesday, I turn up the knob. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then sort of poke at things like everybody happy with the big instance. Are we all good? Are we right. I don't want to, I'm not waiting till, you know, right. noon on Friday for that. Right. Yeah. No, and another thing that we are experimenting with, uh, I shouldn't say experimenting because it's actually in production, is auto-scaling. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, you can t turn on auto-scaling on your Atlas instances that if you see a certain peak load for an extended period of time, it will auto-scale up to mm -hmm. the next instance size. And what's the thing you're measuring? Is it like number of transactions or is it IOPS that you're measuring mm -hmm. to go, okay, this uh, level typically of IOPS bump an instance? Right now it's CPU okay. because we're- So processes are pinned. Yeah, you're- processor is pinned pretty is hard. Is that really then. the bottleneck from Mongo? Like I would think ultimately uh, it it's disk latency that is your bottleneck. I'm trying to remember. I think you can also do it on IOPS. So it yeah. depends on your workload. If you are doing a very IO heavy workload, then obviously disk IOPS is going to be your primary driving factor. If you are doing heavy duty aggregations uh, where you're doing grouping expressions and a lot of heavy compute, that's where you can run into so your CPU CPU tends to run hot. Yeah. Uh, we almost never see network run hot. It's yeah. typically, depending on your workload, it can, if it's very query heavy and using complex queries, like if you're just searching by essentially primary key or underscore ID field, then that takes virtually no CPU resources, resources. But if you're doing a lot of sorting and aggregation in server memory, then that can take up CPU. 
But yeah, you can actually have Atlas auto scale so that it will bump up to the next tier up to a maximum that you set. And then if it remains quiescent, if you are below a certain value for typically previously it was days. I think we're turning, we're getting a bit more aggressive that it can be on the order of hours. If you see like your CPU is really running low, you're not using a lot of disk IO, then you'll drop down your tiers again down to a certain minimum set point. And so we're very much experimenting with this for customers to optimize their costs on Atlas. Cause you could get into uh, a daily mode with this. Like if you're a retail outlet, that's streaming data from transactions, but there's like a 10 hour window where every store is closed like being able to turn that knob all the way down for what is, you know, better, more than a third of a, the day. Or like a year, That's yeah. going to add up over for a month. For sure. Yeah, for sure. What about the long-term storage side of things? Is it, How do we archive? Like I find that. Oh, that's an excellent. Yeah, SQL Azure and, and these kinds of products, like as the data sets get big, they actually get really expensive and you kind of want to carve off old data and put it away. Right. So where, how, is, what is the cheapest storage out there in the world today blob blob yeah. block store yeah whether it be s3 or azure block store that is the, by far the cheapest per gigabyte that you can get so one of the things that we enable is atlas data lake where you can actually spool off your old archive data into an s3 blob store or a uh, azure blob store and the nice thing about that is although your performance isn't great it's still queryable Right. So it's still there. You're just going to notice it's still there. as it goes. It's to just going to be slower yeah. because we don't have the full indexes. We actually have like you can issue MongoDB queries against this blob store, which is quite cool. Yeah. But it's it, it's still there and available for reporting purposes, but you're not inc incurring the cost of having it hot and available immediately. I should mention that Azure SQL does automatic backups. And so if you screw something up, you can just go online into the portal, find the last backup and restore that to another SQL database and you're off to the races. That is a very nice feature, but you know, it, you, you pay for it. Yep. Uh, we have automatic backups as well in, in Atlas. So you can actually, you can establish a backup schedule. Um, the backups are snapshotted into Azure mm. Blob Store or. Uh, nice or into S3, and then you can pick a, a yeah, snapshot yeah. and then restore it either to your own cluster, to a new cluster. Uh, so you have similar functionality so that you can, because you live in, companies live and die by the data. Yep, yeah. And, and, and every, you, you talk about keeping CTOs calm, don't lose <laughs> data, like that's bad. That'd be bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, CTOs get upset when. Yes. But ha so having, having their visibility into data that's old is great, but, Reducing the cost of storing old data is even yeah, better. Because the traditional solution is just delete the old data. Right. Or, yeah. I mean, I've built archive systems onto remote stores and stuff. Or, like, you yeah. archive it onto tapes and, yeah. But having it all built into the platform, and we are investing in this as well, so that to make it easier to, right now, last I looked, uh, you could either query the data that's in Atlas or the, the data in a Data Lake. We're one of our goals is to provide a holistic view of it, so it'll look like the same collection, but right. data that is past a certain year, a certain point old, will actually exist in S3 and be queried from. Yeah, there. automate that shuffling. Mm -hmm. Like I That's can write nice. the code exactly. to shuffle it over and do a batch once a week that sort of hunts down the oldest stuff and pushes over to S3. But I'd rather you did it for mm. me than it's your fault. Uh, the other real selling point, I think, is that there's automatic upgrades um, of your MongoDB server version, which you don't have to do that anymore. Right. And speaking yeah. of making your fault of stuff break, <laughs> right. automatic upgrades. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's nice that, it, it, you know, upgrading not only takes effort, but you're always worried you're doing it wrong. At least if if the, the vendor is doing it, they're probably doing it right. And if they're doing it wrong, they're upsetting Correct. a lot of people at once. Hmm. Uh, and hopefully no breaking changes aversion to version. Yeah, we have a um, process where, you know, for the entire platform, like I said, there's, you know, over a million active projects. So 
we don't roll it out to all 1 million at the same time. We, we basically roll it out to a randomized 10% and wait, and then another 20% and wait, and then another 20% and wait, and then the remainder. So if we have to, we can roll back a version upgrade if we see that there are any problems with the first 10%. And related to that is not only MongoDB upgrades, but OS upgrades. You have to run your server software yeah. on an OS, and it's always a hassle. It's yeah. like there's a new Windows version, there's a new Linux patch that comes out, and going through the rigmarole of having to upgrade all of your servers, that's once again taken care of for you. Yeah, not a, not a You guys like. mentioned a free mm -hmm. SKU of yeah. Atlas. What do you get? Oh, I don't know. We, um, James will have to look up the stats. Um, it seems like a lot. There are a lot of people using it, um, and not just for uh, tinkering and not for learning MongoDB, but there are actually people who are running production level apps in our free tier, which is kind of fascinating. We did a survey. Mm. We sort of assume that most people who were uh, running applications on our free tier are sort of learners or students or beginners mm -hmm. with MongoDB, but that didn't turn out to be true based on the responses to the survey. So, mm. yeah, so you can start out at 512 megabytes storage for free. And I think there's also a limit on connections and a limit on IOPS, but I don't recall what they are. Sure. So, and if you have your your stuff out there, your clusters or your your shared cluster, and uh, and it turns out, lo and behold, everybody wants to be on it, you know, and it becomes popular. You can sort of migrate that up, mm -hmm. I suppose. Yeah, that's great. It's also, I mean, I use the free tier myself for, you know, some. Um, one of the things I did this year was analyzing the Stack Overflow developer survey data. So I just put it in MongoDB and then did oh. some charts so that I could look at like a cross sections of developer communities. So it was cool for that. Um, and then last cool. year I did a, a Hack Your Health little app, which was mobile and a web app. And I used our free tier for that and then used it for a talk at MongoDB World. So it, it's nice uh, to get something up quick, quick and running. I think when it comes to my health, I'd want to unhack it <laughs> rather than. <laughs> but it's also, especially with demo stuff, it's like, I don't like it in the bill at the end of the month because mm -hmm. I forgot to turn the flipping mm. thing off. Not that that's ever happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is all good stuff, guys. Very, very good. What's next? What's next for you, James? Uh, for me, we're working. Uh, so I've been working on the C Sharp driver and uh, we've got lots of new features coming. Uh, one of the features that's coming in the next few days is we're introducing better Linux support. So if you're, you've got a .NET Core app running on Linux, uh, we're going to be adding the ability to do field level encryption, CSFLE on Linux. And the feature that I implemented was actually Kerberos on Linux. Nice. So we're actually wow. talking to the GSAPI shared library on Linux and doing all the fun Kerberos ticketing stuff. Uh, and that was, believe me, I understood Ker Kerberos before because I knew tickets, I knew server tickets, I knew uh, your ticket granting ticket and all that. Actually having to implement the bits on the wire is a whole total level of understanding. How are you liking C-sharp 7 these days? Uh, we actually recently upgraded to C-sharp 9. Wow. And we were just like, can we do this? Hey, we can. If if we use a C sharp nine feature that requires compiler library support, then we get a, com a mm. compiler. So we can use all of the new cool features like record types yeah. and others that come with C sharp nine and eight. I did mention. Uh, I did mean to say nine, not seven. Oh, okay. I wasn't living in the past. <laughs> <laughs> but it also means. But yeah, no. Core, there's a lot right? of yeah. a lot of really nice language features that allow you to write much yeah. clearer code uh, in C-sharp. And just some of the things that we're used to from functional languages are definitely coming over to C-sharp. How about you, Rochelle? What's what's in your uh, inbox? For the C-sharp team, um, I really, you know, I've um, mentioned the gaming before and I started digging in on that. And so I've asked some of our developer advocates and developer relations teams to do uni unity tutorials for C sharp from, from begin for beginners. Oh, wow, cool. So build a entire game in 90 minutes. Nice. And there's, so they've started doing wow. YouTube uh, live streaming of building a game and it's sort of a paired programming exercise. I think it's going to be really cool. 
Um, and then the other thing that I'm going to probably ask the team to do is um, I keep an eye on whenever we have sort of a little swell of users asking for a certain thing or complaining about a thing. And so I'm probably mm-hmm. going to ask the team to do serialization improvements because I've noticed there's a few tickets that have come in. Uh, make it faster, make it better. Okay. <laughs> yes. Okay. There's always going to be those yeah. complaints. It's never fast enough. There's no such thing. But I guess, you you know, you're the PM role. You could see that like this is at a critical mass where it's like, we better look at this and see if there's something there to, to improve. Yeah. Well, and the serialization improvements are interesting because we actually have, unlike some of the other drivers, and one of the reasons I was interested in joining the C-Sharp team is that our serialization infrastructure includes a complete ODM, object document mapper. So it's, you don't just have to work with documents. You can actually say, I've got a customer. I've got an order. You can have actual POCOs that then automatically get translated into the equivalent document structures by the I driver like itself. It. So you can work at your business layer abstraction level and let the driver worry about all the details. That is really cool. James, I'm glad you're working on Me drivers. Too. <laughs> That's very cool. <laughs> Well, James Kovacs and uh, Rochelle Palmer, thank you very much for spending this hour with us. For sure. Thank you so much for having us. Anytime. It's been an absolute pleasure seeing you guys again. You too. And we'll talk to you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a